Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Various Artists Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, and my guest this week is a stable mate of mine, Frank Morelli. By stable mate, I should say that I mean we're both published by Fish Out of Water Books, although mine is technically still pending. Frank's the published author with Fish Out of Water Books, out of the pair of us. Um, Frank, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast, Wayne, and uh, I'm also honored to have to have you under the same umbrella at Fish Out, Out of Water Books with me. Great. Thank you for that. I mean, yeah, it's a great podcast that's had one published episode so far, and, you know, the, the reputation <laughs> speaks speak for itself, you know, and it's all downhill from here. Um, <laughs> Frank, um, as you said, you, you've written a book with Fish Out of Water Books. Your story's called No Sad Songs. It was published in February this year, 2018, to just about universal acclaim from everywhere that I've seen review it. I've read a copy of the story. I read it on a on a flight, um, and it was and actually I didn't finish it on the flight. I was um, we were I think we're on the way back from California actually, and rarely does this happen. So this is a good thing. I still had about thirty pages of the end to go, and I and I did actually read the end as well. It kept me, I was like, I, want, I actually want to read the end. You know, sometimes you'll just read a book on the plane and you can't be bothered with it after. But I, I saw it through to its conclusion, which, as I'll come to reveal later on with my lack of reading skills, um, is a big achievement for me. <laughs> uh, the sort of, I think that is a big win. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Um, it's, a, it's a younger adult novel about uh, an high school student who has to look after his grandfather who has dementia. Um, the introduction from your website about yourself, Frank, um, frankmorellywrites.com. It says, although you'll never catch Frank Morelli without a baseball hat on his head, and I can confirm that for, for listeners, I'm watching him with a baseball hat on his head right now. Um, he's actually worn various hats in his time. He's been a teacher, a coach, a bagel builder, a stock boy, a pretzel salesman, a bus driver. He's got more introductions than Apollo Creed, this guy. Uh, a postal employee, a JC Penny model, sea clock, an actual clock, like in the movie, the same name. Um, a camp counselor, a roving sports reporter, and a nuclear physicist. That one's not true, but I think he's got enough there to go on with. Um, at heart, he's a writer, and that's all he's ever been. So, Frank, how would you describe yourself to the listeners? I would definitely say that I'm just an ordinary blue collar guy, and you can tell from all, all the jobs that I've worked that that uh, I have some varied experience. I would say um, I think that all those experiences, and one of the reasons why I included it in my bio is because I think all of them, all of those different experiences, give me certain perspectives on life, um, coming into contact with different types of customers, different people at different different varying economic levels. Um, all kinds of, of, of different backgrounds. It's just really giving me a lot of, of fodder to write about. Um, but I think that overall, I'm just kind of a guy that, that you would see that you wouldn't be able to pick out of a crowd. I like to wear uh, t-shirts and jeans and, and uh, baseball caps all the time. And um, I, I probably, I definitely define myself as a writer, but I guess the other side of myself is, is, is a teacher. And, and I think that the two sides kind of jive together and, and help me to, to continue, you know, cranking out work. And I guess really what it comes down to is I'm, I'm the person that really hasn't taken a, a traditional vacation in about, I don't know, 15 years now. And I find that my vacation time is spent most of the time sitting in front of, in front of a, a blank wall <laughs> with a wide open desk and some paper and, and just writing. And, and to me, that's, that's enjoyable. Um, it might not feel like 
uh, a break or a vacation to most people. But to me, that's 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 what I enjoy doing. So that's really kind of what you would you would find me doing on a daily basis, um, other than having to go and and uh, make some bread and, and do some teaching as well on the side. Yeah. So so your day job is a teacher at the moment. It is. It is. For well, it's been about. 16 years now. All right, okay. So the, the nuclear <laughs> physicist. I call, it, I call it a day job, but it's really, it's really the, uh, it's really been part of my life for for most of of my working days. So so 16 Along years. 16 years. You obviously you must like it. Do the, do the kids tend to like you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I teach middle school, which some people would say, would say is kind of like a, a really interesting choice in life um, because you kind of need to. You kind of need a thick skin to do that, but it's, it's really the, the world that, that I feel like that's where I've never actually graduated from uh, emotionally. I'm, I'm probably still a middle schooler myself. So, yeah, I connect with the kids really well. Um, I mean, teaching has its days where you where you wish you weren't doing it. I have to admit that. But 90% of the time, I mean, you come home, you come home at the end of the day with some kind of inspiration from a student. Um some kind of idea for, for another story you might write. So, I mean, it's, it's really a, a great um, profession to be in if, if, you're, if you're into writing as well. kind of supports the other. One supports the other, I would say. Yeah, particularly for, um, for the, the avenue which you started down, which is young adult. Um, I'm not a, a genre reader myself. For, for a writer, like I said earlier, I read an alarmingly low number of books every year, although I have tried to improve that recently. Um, so my, my knowledge of young adults stems either from reading or watching John Green movies, which I, I do tend to enjoy. They've been all right. Um, or my own experiences of growing up and watching Dawson's Creek, um, which, you know, I always found a, a bit um, oversaturated with verbose teenagers. But, I, you know, the, the thing is, we English shouldn't seem to cut on to that. It was very popular over here, but... Teenagers that articulate was something that we wasn't, you know, we weren't <laughs> used to um, in England. We we like to grunt quite a lot. Um, one thing I will say, so, so completely <laughs> critical of English and our teachers, but don't worry about that. Um, one thing I will say about No Sad Songs is, which is a novel, by the way, if I haven't referenced that enough, um, it does have that feel where it could be a John Green movie. When I'm reading, when I was reading it. It feel like that, so it does feel like it easily fits into that genre, and I, I do mean that completely as a compliment as well. But it is an accessible story as well because I'm, you know, I'm 37, just I was 36 when I read it, so quite a bit younger. Um, <laughs> so 36 going on 17. Yeah, right. Um, but what I mean by that is it's accessible. I found myself, you know, just things in there that were new to me, and you know, and really a message that I could take away in there as well. Um, and, and I think that would be true for readers of any age. I, I believe that any any reader could pick it up and they would find it an interesting story and they would take something away from it. I guess, Frank, this particular story and the age of the protagonist and the situation that he finds himself in, it's pretty much a straight fit that it was going to work as a young adult. It's interesting. First of all, let me say, let me go back a little bit to the John Green movie. Let's let's hope that this becomes a John Green movie. I'm really I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that each day. But to be honest with you, it actually it actually was kind of difficult uh, at first to fit it into YA, uh, mostly because I hadn't written young adult before. I just got 
I just got done saying that I've been a teacher of students this age for, you know, over a decade and a half. And yet, I, you know, until a few years ago, I never figured out, like, hey, I should be writing for this age group. Um, so the first chapter of No Sad Songs is literally the first piece of young adult fiction I'd ever written. Um, and, and I was in a class at the time um, earning my MFA in creative writing. And it just happened to be a class that I took. It was the first class I took. And it was the first assignment was to try to put together some kind of piece of writing that had a young adult uh, protagonist in it. And this is naturally what came to mind. Um, I had always wanted to write something that, that dealt with Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, and I had been writing for adults for, you know, about a decade before that. Um, Writing, you know, mostly short stories. Um, I had written some books that just never really panned out for me. Um, and mostly I think I, I learned through this process that it's because I probably should have been writing for this age group all along. Um, so at first it was difficult to fit the story and the situation into something that was that was young adult appropriate. Um, it, it, when I began writing it, I didn't even really know that, that there was a such thing as a youth caregiver at the time. I, I, did, I, never, fathom, I never fathomed that that a kid or somebody as young as 17 or 18 could be charged with taking care of, of somebody who, who needs probably professional medical attention in the research of the book. I found out that there's actually more young adult or I'm sorry, youth caregivers out there in the world than, than any of us know. Um, so after, yeah, once I started to write the story, once I got through the first chapter, it started to dawn on me that this was, this had a, this had a perfect uh, tone to it, that, that the idea and the conflict of somebody who's trying to start their life, having to abruptly stop it to take care of somebody else's who's on its way to ending. I just thought that there was such a, an interesting paradox there that I had to follow through with it. So once I got, once I got my character, my protagonist set in that first chapter, um, I felt like he would have been, he was perfect to kind of carry on that paradox. And in fact, he actually has a lot of different uh, similarities to myself and some of my own experiences. So that kind of made it fit even more into the young adult, um, genre because when I was a young adult myself is when I actually had this experience. So I was able to use those things in, in, in tandem to, to kind of, um, make this a straight fit for young adult and, and to, to build in those elements of, of angst where, you know, you're trying to just, you know, fit in and do normal things that a, that a teenager would be doing. But here are these adult responsibilities that are suddenly thrust upon you. Mm. You said that you, you wrote from personal experience as well. How much of it was personal experience and how much, as we were talking just before we, we, we went live with recording, um, how, how much research did you do in, in terms of reading, reading about it? And like I said, and how much that is compared with your own experiences? Um, it's a great question. Uh, a lot of, I drew on my own experiences quite a bit. Uh, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, I'd say, uh, my grandfather, was diagnosed with Pick's disease, which is a form of dementia. Um, and like, uh, like we were talking right before we started recording, there's, there's so many different forms of Alzheimer's out there. This is just one of them. Reasonably rare. Um, it's something that you can have as an early onset disease. So you can be as early as young as 40 years old when you, when you, when you can, when you, uh, are diagnosed with it. Although my grandfather was like in his early sixties when he was diagnosed and it took him about eight years before, the disease took him to a level where, where he eventually was, was no longer able to hold on. Um, it was, it was devastating to watch it. I wasn't actually the primary caregiver of my grandfather at the time, but my, my parents were. And, um, as a 14 or 15 year old, I, I was, I understood what was going on. I was able to watch this kind of play out in front of me. And, um, you know, 
being somebody who was of that age, I felt like I didn't, there was not much I could do or, or I felt like after it was over that there was, there was more that I could do. So there was a guilt factor there. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book to kind of just speculate on what it would have been like if my parents weren't there to, to cushion the blow for me. Um, I did do a lot of research as well. Um, so, I, so I did base it a, a lot of the experiences off of my own experiences, um, although none of the characters are really exact fits of people in my life. Um, but I did do quite a bit of research as well in, in reading about Alzheimer's, treatment of Alzheimer's. Um, there are a remarkable amount of organizations out there now that, that provide information about different forms of Alzheimer's, um, different symptoms or, 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 or things that you might notice, um, how you might try to handle certain economic problems. So basically the Alzheimer's association, um, was really helpful in, in terms of providing information on their website and in other various places. I, I spent loads of time in the library trying to just find out about different treatment methods, um, and how, and how youth caregivers deal with this situation. And I basically tried to kind of combine the two, what I remembered from, from my own experiences with, with what is currently out there in terms of what people would do. Now, also keep in mind that I set the story in the, in the 1990s because I thought I was most equipped to tell it during the time period where I experienced it. So I also had to alter some things about treatment methods that you might, that might be used now or um, avenues that people could, could go, go down now in terms of finding help that did not exist then. Um, but I did try to, as much as possible, combine my research and my experience. And I probably leaned even more heavily on my experience to try to write this book. Um, and I think I, I think I was successful in creating something that was pretty authentic in, in what somebody's life might be like if they're thrust into this, into this situation. Yeah, no, you absolutely were. Um, talking about drawing on your experiences, like we talk about your work as a treat, uh, as a teacher. So, being around teenagers as an adult, I guess, is that a help or is it an hindrance when giving your characters their voices? I mean, like you said, you're setting it back 20 years, so you're having to call on your, you know, like your sort of, your vocabulary then, which, you know, there's a lot of slang and everything that's not quite um, prevalent <laughs> today, do you know what I mean? And, and a lot today, which isn't sort of relevant to them. That's a great point. But what I've, what I've always found is that, is that, the, my students, especially, they wind up reminding me of myself and my experiences when I was a t when I was their age, and I find that they're not as different as we think. Yeah, they might use some different slang words, um, but really, the way that they deliver certain forms of communication, the way that, the way that they react to different situations, it's. I mean, teenagers are teenagers, and I think they always have been, and they always will be. So I, I find it to be a benefit. Um, every single day something happens in my classroom where it's, where it reminds me of, oh my goodness, I see myself in that situation. And it kind of helps me to, to recall, uh, experiences that I had that I might not have otherwise remembered. I mean, as, as we get older and, and, you know, get further into adulthood, I think some of the, the smaller details of your, of your teenage life start to disappear from your memory. But I have like a, a daily reminder of all of the mistakes that I made and all the, the idiot things that I did um, and all the ways that I could have changed things. So a lot of those things are really helpful to me. But, you know, in this, and in the same respect, I wind up seeing um, students that age that are doing things that are more like what my protagonist, Gabe Lascuda, does in, in, in terms of just being admirable and, and just going above and beyond what I would have been able to do. So both of those, seeing, seeing both of those things in my classroom is, is extremely helpful. I wouldn't trade it for anything. In fact, 
I did, I, I, the only thing that I would trade was is my own decision not to be a young adult writer earlier on in my in my teaching career because I think the two are just perfect matches. Do you think, though, in a certain way, you had to come to that realization yourself? So, I mean, maybe if you'd have thought on year one or year two of doing this that you I should nail this young adult writing because I work with them every day. You don't really have the experience yourself, and apart from being a young adult at some point in our life, but you know what I mean. Like you, you would, might, it's, it takes your life to make that decision for you in a way. So yeah, there's the element I of agree with that. Yeah, you know, sometimes you're given the, you're given the situation that you need at a certain time. So yeah, I, I think you, you know, Now that you put it that way, when I when I think about writing short stories for many, many years up until the point where I decided I was going to write a book. I think, I, I think that that was also helpful. And even though I was writing literature that was more geared towards adults, the idea of being able to understand what goes into writing a short story and then being able to build on that, maybe I wasn't ready to, 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 you know, build on what I was, what I was doing in the classroom yet and write as a young adult author, because I had to, I had to, walk, walk the miles, uh, in, in my writer's shoes. So, yeah, I mean, everything that you do as a writer, I think is probably, is probably beneficial in some way. It's one of the best things about being a writer. You can mess up for a long, long time before everything goes right. <laughs> exactly. Right. The, the, the answer is more like what well, in 10 years, I'd be even better. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, um, exactly. The, the other thing, I mean, that one of the biggest things I had, um, I knew that I would be writing my protagonist in Peachy as a 20 something, and I suppose it's easier to write dialogue and mentality for that age because I think you were saying there about we've all got that sort of middle grade mentality, especially guys. It's more prevalent for us because we seem to be stuck in that time when we that was our prime, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, everything was, until everything became so bad for us. Um, but I mean, for any of us who hover towards the, the creative pursuits in life, a part of us, it's always stuck there. And it's the time where we're effectively at that open door in life. We're feeling free to indulge in everything that's going to offer us. And at the same time, unaware of how trapped we're quickly going to become. Um, having Freddie, my protagonist, as this sort of free-spirited musician who has the capability to sort of travel around, it, it removed these anchors from him and it gave him this sense of wondering the world and there was newness in everywhere that it was going for me one of the most admirable things you did in those sad songs is taking that freedom and vulnerability of these impressionable young people and giving them this huge responsibility because it's not only Gabe in there um you, you tag in as your lead character it's not only him who has the responsibilities friends are sharing that not only their own burdens but they have the burden of friendship as it as the novel wears on and you know there's big decisions that they've all got to make really and they're making that right call and the compelling thing is that in in stories as in life really there's never really a black and white wrong or right or there rarely is so you're coming at it from a point where to your protagonist i guess at that point you know he's got a noble naivete about him and i got the feeling that you strongly associated with that and you identified with the, the moral stance and choices that he makes so did it make it easier to write with that in mind, or was it a challenge to get to that point? It was definitely a challenge, um, especially, especially since uh, one of the things that I wanted to, to infuse into my, my protagonist especially was the idea that, that 
there's a selfishness still here in, in, in his youth. And he was kind of thrust into this role. He wasn't, he wasn't something that he, he initially chose to do, even though he eventually took on the mantle of it. So there are days and, and times in the book where he seems harsh. He seems like this is not something he wants to do. Um, it seems difficult for him to, to even want to care for somebody who's his loved one. And, and I just, going back to my own experiences, I kind of remember that. Uh, myself. And, and even though I wasn't the primary caregiver of my own grandfather, I remember at times feeling like, man, I have to be seen in public with this guy who's not no longer a person I really even recognize anymore. And those kind of moments, you know, they, they make you feel kind of bad about yourself. Um, that, that, that was a, a piece of naivety that I wanted to get in there. Um, but at the same time, wanting to be able to kind of push through those things and do what's right for the people that you love, um, not necessarily understanding how much you're going to have to put into it as well. So, so yeah, all, all of the, um, all the things that I experienced with my grandfather, uh, in terms of, in terms of being able to like try to help him, but still be able to take care of myself and not be completely selfish about it. Tried, I tried to put that into my character and, and his friends are, are, are people who are able to see that in him, see that he's maybe trying to, to do something that's above and beyond what he can, can handle. And they sometimes have to step in and help him. Um, I've had friends like that along the way, which, which I think are the best kind of friends that you can have, even though at the, at the times where, the, where they tell you, you know, when you're doing something wrong, it's hard to, to accept it. So I wanted to make sure that, that, that Gabe's friends also had that that kind of noble moral stance that you talk about in there. Um, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to, to, to walk the line. Um, I think a lot, a lot of the people who read the book in its first draft stages, um, had mentioned to me things about, you know, about my, my character Gabe, like kind of responding to his grandfather in a way that, that seemed too harsh. Like, like somebody who loves, uh, who loves somebody who's taking care of him at this level, they wouldn't talk to him like this. And I thought back, I thought, yeah, they would, because there are hard moments and sometimes you have to push through those as well. So yeah, it was, it was a difficult balance. Um, and you know, I think I got, I got as close as I could get to, 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 to striking it. Uh, without making it seem like Gabe is too much of a of a, of a perfect character and, and or too much of a, of a character that doesn't understand the, the value of what he's doing. Yeah, and that was one of the um, most compelling character study parts of it for me, in that he, he's doing this noble thing, but for, for a kid of, you know, 15, 16... They're not really uh, children or teenagers of that age. Even even like I was saying, American teenagers are as articulate as they are and as advanced as they are compared to you'd say the average British teenager in terms of education and, and maturity. He still seemed they, they don't. What I'm saying is they don't get bogged down by the idea of martyrdom. So they they're not carrying that around. With, you know, I've got to do this because it's my sense of responsibility. Where he's doing it out of a sense of nobility. However, his friends can see that it's not necessarily, you know, just because it looks like it's the right thing, it's not necessarily the right thing for him. And I, I thought it was such an interesting thing because, especially for a young adult, that's almost a, a new adult theme, if you think about it, because it's such a, it's a leap that you're taking, which I guess the, 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 the subject matter of the book had to have that kind of conflict in there, which, but I think you tackled that very well. Is that, was that something deliberate that you, you tended? Because, I mean, it's almost inevitable that it's going to be part of the conclusion. Yeah, definitely. And it was, it was definitely something that I, that I was 
you know, mindful of when I was doing it, um, when I was writing it all from the very beginning of the book, um, well, after the first chapter, once I started getting it rolling, that was just, that was something that I definitely was had in the back of my mind. Um, and that, that, uh, in fact, one of the, the, the overall ideas of Gabe were, that was probably written on my first list of, of notes for the character was that I wanted him to be bound by duty and, and to be, to feel like he has made this promise that he doesn't want to get out of, but he also can't get out of, and that he needs people around him to show him that he doesn't necessarily have to be bound by this, that there might be other other avenues he could take and other ways that he can he can set up his life so that he can still take care of his grandfather and then also take care of himself. So, yeah, it was a difficult balance, but but I think it's a realistic balance. Um, and in talking to other other people who have been youth caregivers, um, recently did an interview with, with, a, with a, a woman who was a youth caregiver and it continues to be a caregiver now to somebody else and that was one of the things that she connected with as well which which made me really really delighted to hear because here's somebody who actually experienced this and picked up on that same fact that you were just mentioning and that that i had in the back of my mind as i was writing this character interesting because i mean it's such a big issue at that point where if if it if it's not told correctly the entire story could have fell flat because it's built on his moral code really so I, I think he did a great job with that. He also, like we said, we talked about the the illness of dementia and Alzheimer's in, in No Sad Songs, and, and that in itself is a pretty big topic to take on. One, what we said, you're evidently familiar with, and yet it's still tough to do justice to it just because you went through it. doesn't mean it's easy to articulate or or put across in a way that's accessible. But your, your story is not only focused on raising awareness for the reality which sufferers go through, it, it also does shine a light on those young caregivers you know, most right-minded people would, I guess, you know, they have some human emotion and compassion and they have some connection to the illness in knowing what it is. But the idea that there are so many young people who have these responsibilities, like you said, is something that surprised yourself in the research for it. And it's not something that people normally associate with the illness. So, first of all, you should be commended for doing a great job with that. But um, I wanted to know how, how difficult does that make something to write? Because... For me, for example, we were talking about personal experiences before before we went on air again. And I have death and grief. We all do, really, as this universal thing that we go through. And I use the, I call on that as a, as a theme in Peach. But nobody really needs grief awareness. Um, and it's a very individual thing. You take from it something different to what the next person is going to take from it. Whereas for a subject matter like what you chose, in two aspects, the illness and the caregiving, there's a multifaceted need for accuracy there. So how difficult was it to do that inside of the creative process? Yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult. And, and, and like I mentioned earlier, one of the things I tried to do was, was to lean on my own experience and my own memories in, in tandem with doing just, just doing research and understanding, you know, what people are actually doing now on the ground who have these situations. But uh, one thing that I did to, to try to, to, to grasp this within the creative process was to use some devices. Um, I, I started to realize that many of my own realizations about about Alzheimer's and, ca- and caring for my grandfather uh, came from reflection. So what I decided to do in the book was to have my character Gabe write uh, at working on, a, on an essay project. So he, he's writing these personal essays that compare poetry to his own experiences, which the experiences from, from his life that I decided to choose were all ones that, that – that um, had something to do with him and his and his grandfather earlier on in their life. 
So in real time, you get a chance to see how Gabe is dealing with his new life as a caregiver, but you also have a chance to see how he remembers his grandfather and how, and, and the realizations that he's making um, from his past and how he's comparing them to the present, which I think, it, it, you know, the benefit of hindsight for myself allowed me to, 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 to realize a bunch of things about the, the uh, limits of being a caregiver. You know, you want to be able to like help this person as much as you want. When, when you start off caring for somebody with dementia, you know right off the bat that you can't save them. I mean, it's really kind of a death sentence. So you got to find other, other avenues, other ways to help them to, to a have you know enjoy the rest of their life or at least have some dignity, and for you to be able to 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 be able to, to have some moments with that person in the in their final years, and I think that by by including the essays in there by using that device in the story, I was able to show how Gabe, my character, remembers his grandfather when he was a person that he's no he no longer happens to be anymore, and I think that's one of the things that helps and helps that helps my character to continue doing the job that he's, that he's been thrust into. Um, but I think that allowed me also as a writer to not just make this like a flat story with, with a single storyline that there were, there was this, this other backstory, this, this, these events that happened in Gabe's life between him, his grandfather, his father, his uncle, that were important to the, to the moments that are occurring now, even though I have, a, I basically have a character in the, in his grandfather who has, is in the latter stages of dementia and barely has any speaking lines. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to try to strike that balance there because otherwise you end up with this very like straightforward story about a kid just, you know, doing the daily duties of a caregiver, which, you know, could, could fall flat and not be as, as not have as much depth as I would want it to. So using those essays allowed me to do that connected to some, some, some poetry that I thought held some of the same themes and same problems and conflicts that, that also were, were striking my character. Absolutely. And I think it's very effective as well. Um, it fleshed out the characters without, you know, you not having to write too much of the story in, in there. All right. Accelerate the story. You're taking it almost like when you're reading the book, it's like you're taking a, a short break from it. And I guess with a story that heavy as well, you kind of need that respite, don't you? You know, with, with something that's got such a heavy subject matter. Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, it, it was it was definitely and gave me the ability to kind of step outside of that 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 gravity for a moment. Some some of the essays are filled with some gravity, but some of them kind of recount moments in, in Gabe's life that just show the type of person that he was versus who he is now and becoming. Um, some of them are just are strictly to show that he needs to, to, to rely on, on, on the humorous moments in his life to kind of help him get through this. Some of them are just happy memories of his grandfather that show that his grandfather is not the person, was not the person that he has come has become. Um, and it helps Gabe, it helps Gabe and it helped, it helped me actually as a writer to kind of think about experiences that I had when I was younger. Um, it was, it was definitely therapeutic for me to kind of walk through some of Gabe's experiences and just compare them to my own and, and, uh, and, and kind of live it, uh, in his shoes for a little bit. How did that help them with your, you know, you said that you had your own guilt. So, I mean, you've, you've talked to different people, you've written a story on it. Um, you, you've got this awareness now, or I, I guess even, even though it's your own story, you have a newfound, appreciation for the individual journeys that we all, you know, every story is different. Does it help alleviate any of the guilt that you have? I mean, do, do you sort of realise that he's almost misplaced in their ways and it's almost like this, this 14, 15 year old almost 
need something to feel guilty about in a way. If that makes sense, do you know what I mean? You almost want you want to have that. It makes the association stronger, you know, in some in some sense. Yeah, well, yeah. For myself, it definitely helped me to alleviate that feeling, especially since one of the one of the exercises that I partook in many many times while I was writing this was just talking to my parents, who were the actual caregivers, and just interviewing them and asking them questions, and you know, striking up these conversations that I guess to them seem like casual conversations, but were totally planned by me, so I could pump them for information. But uh, but most, one of the things that struck me was talking to my father and telling him that you know at, at the time I felt like there wasn't a lot that I could do, or that that, that I was I felt helpless, or that I didn't feel like I had any enough expertise to even help them. And he said, you know, Frank, uh, I have to tell you, be honest with you. He's like, I was the caregiver, and I didn't know those things either. So that that really opened up my eyes. That made me realize that you know this is the kind of disease that, like I said, there's no cure. You can't. Doctors haven't even been able to reliably slow it down. Um, any person that steps into the role of a caregiver is set up to fail, but they're still heroes. And, um, you know, so, so writing this helped me to, to kind of realize that, especially talking to other people. And then since it's been published um, and I've done some, some visits in different schools, I've actually um, come into contact with some, some students who are dealing with the situation currently and just hearing their feedback and, and being able to, to talk to somebody who has been through something similar to them. I could just see it in their eyes that it helps them to just have that association and to just be able to lean on somebody else who, who may have also dealt with some of the same hardships. It makes you just feel like you're not the only one that, that, you know, other people were able to get through this and I can too. That's pretty much goes for almost anything in life, any hardship, but for this one, especially you're kind of lost at sea and it's the kind of disease that just, it seems like it lasts for so long my grandfather had the disease for eight years before he died. So, I mean, that's eight years watching somebody pass away, and it just becomes – you feel like you're lost. You know, you feel like you're lost in that moment that you can't get out of it. So, yeah, being able to re-explore myself with hindsight and being able to talk to the people who were involved in it with me and then being able to share my experiences with people who are currently share, ha- having the same hardships has been really helpful for me and I think for other people as well. When you were writing it, because it is so – I mean, it's so personal in terms of the illness itself and the the fact that you lived through it with someone who was so close to you. How difficult was it? I mean, there was a time, I, mean, I guess, I'm putting words into your mouth, I guess, but there's got to have been times where you had to step away from that story. You were like, this, you know, you've touched on a particular point where you've, said, you've written something and perhaps without even realising it, you've stumbled upon something that's so reminiscent of what you went through and you're just like, you know what? word document <laughs> you can just sit and rest for half an hour because i need to go somewhere so many times and and i will even say that it still happens um I, just in, in in i guess the last few weeks i i wrote uh, i was writing some guest blog posts for different places and so i was writing i was trying to recall the time when i found out when my grandfather actually passed away and i, I was in college by that time and i remember my, my brother called me up in my dorm room and and broke the news to me. And I remember feeling at that time, like I didn't have any feelings. Um, like I, I, like there was a sense of relief almost that my grandfather had passed away because he had been through this journey, this horrendous journey for so long. But then there was also the feeling of guilt. Like how can I feel relief over one of my loved ones dying? And I, I wrote a, a very short piece, um, only about less than a thousand words about that whole feeling in that moment. And I, I decided to, to, to read it at a reading where some of my family members were a few weeks ago. 
and you know, I had trouble getting through that. So <laughs> there were lots of different times in the in the course of this that it just it opened up some wounds that I had to step away, or I even read some research, or I read a case study about somebody who had something similar, um, and it would just yeah, it would just definitely make me hit the, hit the save button, walk away, and go outside and take my dog for a walk because I just needed to kind of escape from it, but. But it also was 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 in the long run extremely helpful for me and helped me to, to help me to kind of gather up my memories, organize them in a way that was help that was healthy, I guess is the best word, and uh, and to get a good viewpoint and perspective on this whole situation so that I can eventually help other people with it. Yeah, well, I've, I think it's all the better for it because I think it's an important story and too many people. I'm you know certainly not going to include myself as someone who written anything of any real importance but you you, you try at least right you, you try and write something that's going to have some kind of significance in there so rather than just you know boy meets girl and that sort of stuff you've actually written something that matters and will be accessible to people um just a, a quick one on the process of writing when did the idea come to you to actually write this story and, and how long did it take to write I had been thinking about writing about this topic for a long time, at least it's been at least ten years. Um, but it didn't really occur to me as a as a as a as a young adult topic until I started taking classes for my MFA, and I had just by chance had that first class where I had where I was forced. I was literally forced, like I had a deadline. You have to write this. Um, and I guess like I'm, I'm good with pressure. In fact, I usually wait till the last minute so that I could have the pressure kind of, kind of motivates me. And I guess that in that moment, the story just kind of seemed like this was, this was the time for me to use it, to use it in this, in this, uh, in this venue. So, uh, once I started to write it, the first draft did not, it, it was one of the, one of the most, you know, it, it went from beginning to end very, very quickly, much more quickly than a lot of other works that I've, that I've been involved in. Um, so probably about a year. Uh, also, like I said, I was doing this for a class. So, uh, or for a whole entire writing program. So I had many, many deadlines, and those deadlines kept me kept me in check, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote it so quickly. I was also so interested in it, and like I said, it was built on experience. Um, but after I, after it was written, um, then the process of revising probably took another two years. So I guess the, the story itself was in the making that you would read if you were to pick it up at a bookstore now. Um, but... In my mind, the, the idea of, of writing about this topic has been much longer than that. Um, so I'm just glad that it's out there now. I'm, 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 I'm really happy that I finally was able to put pen to paper and, and put it into a, a, a package that I'm, I'm really happy about for young adults. Because, like I said, I don't think there's a lot of I don't think there's a lot of literature out there for young adults on this topic. And if there is, it's more geared toward a nonfiction uh, reader, which. As a teacher, I know there there aren't very many of those, so I, I, you know I'm happy that I was able to turn it around quickly once I got started on the idea. Yeah, great. Um, let's talk about the the sort of journey to publication. Then um, every writer goes through it. Rejection. How many rejections did it take until um, you came to fish out water books and and it got accepted there? Um. Wow, I, I lost count. I lost count of the amount of rejections. Um, I try not to count them, to be honest with you. But I know there were many. Um, I first started to send it out to to various agents, and then some of the bigger publishing companies. Um, a lot of people didn't didn't have interest because they thought that my character Gabe didn't 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 have uh, didn't have I guess this this 
uh, traditional like protagonist, young adult protagonist viewpoint, and that he was maybe uh, a little bit flaw- like more flawed than usual, which is exactly what I was trying to do. So when when I eventually uh, sent it over to John Wilson at Fish Out of Water Books and heard back from him, I was I was elated, um, and you know just hearing the feedback that he had. Uh, he was exactly he, he had picked up on exactly what I was trying to do with the book. And, and it's just just once you once you have somebody out there that believes in the work just as much as you do, it's it's a great feeling. I mean, even more. I mean, signing that publishing contract was was a rush. Um, I'll never forget that. Probably sitting here on my shelf and looking at me somewhere as I, as I speak. But I think just the bigger rush was was hearing back from a publisher who understood and got it. He, he, he read the book and was like, this 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 is what I see you doing here, which is when it was exactly what I was trying to do. And he agreed with it. And that to me was like, all right, here we go. This is going to, this is going to be something. Um, and yeah, just one of the greatest feelings that I've ever had. How, how did the rejection make you feel? I mean, like I said, it's a personal story to you. And I guess the feedback, if you're getting any constructive criticism, if, if it's anything along the lines of what I've had with my um, long standing flirtation with the mistress of rejection. It's generally, um, you know, it's well-meaning criticism, but sometimes it'll be things like, well, this should happen, and and if it refers to something that happens later in the story, and you, the, they kind of say, oh, well, you should put it there instead, and it's like, or, or they'll explain how one character should change their entire outlook on the way that they see life, and, and it changes the entire story anyway, and you know, have you ever tried maybe a different illness to sort of come come across? You know what I mean? Things like that. And I don't know. At some point, it, it becomes this idea of... And I always... I mean, I'm a believer in improving work. And, I, and let me say from my experience of working with John, he's, he's certainly an improver and a great collaborator in, in terms of... Like, he sees the value and he adds value as well. Do you know, his, his ideas yes. are very insightful and everything like that. But you don't always get that with people. And you have to sort of... Where, where do, you, do you draw the line in terms of in terms of pleasing people? Did you ever get somewhere where someone was sort of like, well, we're interested in it, but you've got to make these changes and then you're butting heads so much where you just feel the integrity of the story's being lost. Was there ever a yeah. point like that for you? Oh, well, a, a lot of times. First of all, I try. I try not to take rejections personally, and but I, but I can't say that I've, I've always a hundred percent, you know, abided by that. Yeah. Um, but most of the time, I let it. I let it kind of just roll roll off my off my back. But uh, I definitely have received, you know, rejections like that. Some of them that are helpful. Some of them that are obvious. Obvious where sometimes it seems like maybe the editor didn't didn't just didn't read far enough into the story to see that come to fruition. Um, and a lot of times where, where I feel like, yeah, uh, I, I got to, you know, draw my line in the sand. I, I, I kind of, I guess I kind of look at it almost like if you're going to go buy a used car, you got to go in there with an idea of like, this is the, this is the, the, the highest amount of money that I'm, I'm going to spend. This is the line in the sand that I'm not crossing. I have to have this in the car. I have to have this and yeah. I, I'm not paying more than this. If you don't, if you don't go in with that idea in mind, then, then definitely you can find yourself changing your story to a level that, that, 
is is more that goes beyond your comfort level. So, yeah, I had my I had certain things about the story that I just were, I just was not going to change, and and you have to go into it knowing like, all right, I, I, I'll walk away from the table, and I just won't have this book published if this is going to happen because I believe in my story the way it is. But at the same time, yeah, you have to you have to walk that line and be able to say that there's you know you have to, to first of all go into it knowing you're not perfect, and you, as writers, and and you could probably attest to this, we're always improving every single. Every, minute every word that we write i think we're getting better so um so if you go into it thinking that you're not going to change anything then you're probably thinking too highly of yourself as a writer but if you if you also go into it thinking that you know you're going to just do whatever anybody asks you to do then you know you're also not really a writer you're not standing by what it is that your story was meant to do and and you have to believe in your story and if you don't believe in your story then there's not really anybody else that's going to either. So, yeah, even with John, there were a couple things that I that I argued for. Um, he was definitely, like you said, a builder, and, and he, he he improved this. He definitely will handily improve this story at least a hundred percent in my eyes. Um, but but there were even still like little points that would come up between John and I that I just wasn't going to change, and that that he eventually accepted, <laughs> or I eventually relented to. So just that give and take that that eventually makes a polished work of literature. Explain then, how did it feel when, after these rejections that you've got, I mean, at some point, if, if you're like me, it gets numbing to the point of, like I say, you don't take it personal and it just comes through, you know, we, we really enjoyed it, but yeah, okay, bye-bye, bye-bye email. And and then <laughs> and then you get the the you know, the offer of publication, which, I mean, for me, I was a little bit surprised, you know, like, it caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting it, so, and then obviously it felt good afterwards, how did it feel for you, I mean, was the journey that vast, was it, was it a case of you were weighed down by rejection, or was it just a good sort of vibe that you had from John from the start? Yeah, that's a great question, um, for, for this particular book, I, I I was I wasn't really starting to get bogged down by rejection at this point. Um, earlier in my career, there was time where, where I was just trying to get like short stories published on, on on like on literary sites and things like that, and, and nobody knew who I who I was at the time. And you know, I probably wasn't wasn't as good of a writer as I was back then, and it, and it was a struggle just trying to get that first piece of writing like published. Um, I remember getting to the point then after 50 or 60 rejections thinking like, I'm never going to be a writer. So once I got that first um, acceptance on just a small piece of writing that I don't even think is, is available to even find on the, on the, on the internet anymore. I actually hope it isn't. Um, (laughs) Once I got that, then I felt like, then I felt like things would just continue to build and and they really have. So it became easier to deal with rejection. Um, But yeah, when I, when I got the, uh, when I got the note from John, yeah, there was like a, it was like one of those double take moments. Like, wait, am I reading this correctly? Especially since this book was my debut novel, it was like really the first contract that I've signed. Um, you, you start to kind of get numbed by the rejections, and you feel like you know you, you believe that it's going to happen one day, but when that day comes, you're kind of like, what? And it, you know, it didn't even really happen in the way that I had envisioned in my mind a thousand times, which nothing in life usually usually happens that way. Um, but it was a great feeling, and you know, I guess I have a question to, to shoot back to you, since you had had a number of books out there. Does this, does it feel the same every single time uh, you, you get that note? Yeah, it does. I, there's a difference between. I mean, yeah, like I said, I am lucky, I'm, and I am. By the way, the the feeling of 
accomplishment that someone wants to publish your work is never something that you take for granted or at least it isn't for me with sports uh-huh. with sports books it's a little bit different because i'll i'll be talking to people about the idea do you know what i mean so it, right. rather than the investment in or particularly i mean we've both been on this path writing a fiction story there's already an investment in there a personal investment so it it is always a lot more personal when you get the rejection and and things like that. So I, I don't know. It, it's easier to deal with because I've had rejection on the sports books as well. Do you know? So it's easy to sort of. There's that many variable reasons for why someone's yeah. going to reject something that it's not always personal unless it gets personal. <laughs> so people can get personal. You know, it has been known. Um, but yeah, the, the sports one. I guess it has helped as a buffer. Do you know what I mean? It's, it prepares you for different things, but there are things that it can't prepare you for in, in terms of this being fiction writing. It's almost there's an emotional connection there. Oh, and it's all creative as well, isn't it? Rather than like you know, you're telling a non-fiction story, and the value is almost it's fifty percent in the story and fifty percent in the way that you're going to tell it. Um, whereas it is that again for a fiction, I guess, but as well, it's all your own work that way. And yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Judged in about five million different angles on that. Yeah, exactly. And they, even if they said that they, they're not judging, you feel the judgment, right? You know, it's, it's always Definitely. the same. Um, so, so what comes next then for Frank Morelli? Um, have you got anything written or planned ready to join the world? Uh, yeah, I actually been write, writing a, a lot, even in the in the in the course in the run up to to No Sad Songs coming up coming out, and then also even after that, um, in the run up to No Sad Songs coming out, I, I wrote a book called uh, Real Beauty, which might not be the title when it eventually reaches people, but but uh, that I signed that with with Fish Out of Water Books, and uh, I'm hope we're, I'm hoping that at some point in, in 2019, uh, I'll be I'll be celebrating the book birthday of that one. Um, it's basically about a, a Minnesota high school hockey star, and he's involved in an abusive kind of relationship. His father's abusive. He's like an ex-hockey goon. And uh, him, you know, my, my protagonist and his mother decide they're going to escape uh, the situation, and they decide to go to a family member's house who lives in, in North Carolina, which is basically a place where there's absolutely no hockey. So he has to kind of make his make his way there, and then his father, his father winds up following him to his uh to his new home and he has to try to continue to, to, to try to rebuild his life with this other, with this problem on his side. And he's also a, uh, a movie buff, uh, and his rights, he writes some of the story as a screenplay. So that's kind of been fun. It's kind of learned screenwriting for the, for the purpose of the, of the book and to, to kind of write portions of it in, in his like own personal screenplay that runs along the side of it. So interesting mix of, of mediums. It's pretty difficult to write and, uh, I think there's still a lot more work to do on it before before it's ready to get out there, but I'm excited to see it out there in the world. And I have a couple other books that I've that I've written uh, that I'm, I'm shopping around right now, trying out some some middle grade stuff. And uh, one of them's kind of like a um, like a supernatural thriller, which I've never written before, so that should be kind of interesting. So I'm just getting getting started on on uh, getting that to a point where I can start sending it out to people and facing some rejections, like you said. <laughs> are you a believer in supernatural that's a great question um 
The reason why, let me let, while, while, while you dwell on that, let me just, I'll explain my own take on this. Because I, I wrote um, my first fiction story, um, which, which was surprisingly enough published, because I sent it to the publisher and I wanted feedback on it. And she said that she wanted to publish it, which was great. But that was a, it was effectively a ghost story. And I don't believe in ghosts. And so the, the point of the story was more about it's a psychological thing. Do you know, it was mm-hmm. the guy was having a psychological breakdown. And so he thinks he sees ghosts and there's a story of, you know, the, the house that he goes to visit is the haunted house. And, you know, there's this reputation attached to it, but it's all his own psychological damage that is attached to it. And so when I was writing it, and I'm a big fan of horror films and everything like that, I'm a big fan, just not a believer in the supernatural. So to get to that point where I'm writing a, a story that's based on that, when I know, you know, when I'm challenging the boundaries of what's realistic or not, you know, because I'm having to believe it myself. You know, when you're writing, you've got to have conviction in what you're writing. So, and and I've had some great people like advice, sorry, feedback from people saying, "Oh, it was really scary," and I didn't want to turn the pages and everything like that. I thought that's really great. And then <laughs> one bad review on Amazon, which said, "I've seen scarier episodes of Scooby Doo." <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be brutal. It's my favorite review, actually. I think I might print that one out. Um, that's as good as it gets. But yeah, um, how do you feel about? I mean, what's your feelings on the supernatural? Yeah, I don't think I ever really believed in ghosts, especially like in a scary, like horror kind of way. But yeah, I do enjoy. I, I love Stephen King. Um, I love like I love horror movies. I can get, I can get into that kind of stuff really easily. Um, I guess the only experience I ever had with like supernatural that makes me sometimes think is. Um, I guess it's probably been about almost 10 years now. I, I, I had a student, I lost a, one of my students in a, in a car accident and I was asked to give for eulogy. And I, and I was, I was like so nervous. Uh, I was having trouble writing the eulogy. Um, I only had about 24 hours to put it together. And, um, I finally put this thing together and I felt so nervous about it. I couldn't even read it. I couldn't get through it. Like maybe two or three lines without crying. And I remember I, I got out side onto my onto my patio and I was reading it to somebody and all of a sudden this like butterfly came flying across and literally landed on the page that I was reading and so suddenly at that moment I just felt so calm I was able to read through it when I got to the actual uh service itself I gave I uh, I gave the eulogy and it was perfect and I don't know how I got through it at all but then you know the, the girl who I did not know I didn't know this about ahead of time she her, apparently was is like was like totally into butterflies, and she had all of her schoolwork there. Her mom had put all of her schoolwork that she had collected, and it was like all in the church. It was like butterflies everywhere. So I, I don't know. I had that moment, and I thought to myself, "Man, maybe there is something going on in the sea because, uh, you know, not in a scary way, but maybe there is some other something." So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about. It. Um, I don't think it played when I, when I wrote the story. It didn't have definitely none of that kind of stuff really played into it. I, I tried to play more on psychological parts um, to, to, to create the, the, the horror in it. So yeah, probably I'm right. I'm right along the same lines as you in, in that I don't believe in scary ghosts and, and like, I don't think there's going to be a uh, zombie apocalypse anytime soon, <laughs> but, uh, but I sure do like to read and watch stories about them. Yeah. I just thought you were being scared of them. You know, they, they exist that way. You know, they, in, in, <laughs> You know, there's definitely like you know ghosts hanging around. If if you see a dangerous shadow, 
you should definitely be afraid of it because you know it's not just a shadow, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, coming towards the end of the podcast, I, I do like to end my own questions by asking, "What is the ultimate creative indulgence for you?" You kind of answered it at the start, just sitting with a blank page writing. But um, I'll ask it anyway. What what is the ultimate in- creative indulgence? Uh, I'll add some other indulgences in there that are more like writer indulge, like things that I indulge in myself that I probably shouldn't, which is <laughs> using the M dash. I'm a big fan of using the M dash. Whenever I get a chance to use the M dash, I feel complete. So there's one of my indulgences that I like to, to put out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So I'm going to end by doing what I always do. Ask the 10 questions immortalized in James Lipton's in the actor studio series. Now I got told off the last time I did this because I started interrupting and, and discussing. So I'm just going to ask the questions and, and stay out, stay out of the answers. Um, number one, what is your favorite word? Uh, well, I think it changes on a, almost a daily basis according to my mood, but I'm, I love creating words. I love, I love like fake words, words that are just created. So I'll go with, uh, I'll go with today. I'll go with ridiculousness. Okay. What, what is your least favorite word? I think the word that, because it's overused and can be removed in most cases. Don't get me started on that. I have, um, that if there's an OCD, problem that I have is that you know oh my god I love it's the, it's the word that I edit out of my work more often than any other I, and I will go through I'll have an entire editing session dedicated to removing that I did it with Peach I did John said oh like, is everything alright with this draft I said <laughs> they will be and don't be annoyed but I just need to give it a once over because <laughs> at this strange hour I've just had this really bad big station with the word that and it needs to go um, yeah what what terms you want create in, uh, oh I'm sorry I was going to say when I'm when I'm uh, teaching and I, I, one, one time I, sometimes I like to give my students an activity to do which is to write something and then try to cut 10% of it and word count wise and they're always like they moan and groan because doing that is like the hardest thing in the world for them and the, the first question they say is like I don't even know where to start I was like the first thing to do is look for the word that and get rid of it wherever you can you don't need it and and oftentimes that cuts down like 5% of the words that they need so yeah it's a, it's a it's an overused word hate it my other overused one is um I found myself doing this quite often. It's ostensible. I, I, lo- I love that word. And then if it's in any manuscripts more than once, it does not. It, it's only got a place once in any manuscripts. It doesn't matter how long that manuscript is. You cannot have that word in more than once. Do you know? It's, it's like rations. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I'm I'm having OCD about that. I'm, uh, I'm already thinking I'm going to go back to Peach and see just. Just to see what <laughs> that is doing. Um, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Wow, um, I would I would say yeah, creatively. Uh, I love what turns me on is being like completely alone and in a in a room where there are no distractions, and I know nobody's going to call me, and I have, I have like ten straight hours, and there's not going to be dogs barking. That's that's my favorite moment, and I think probably spiritually and emotionally it might be the same exact thing because that's what that's what winds up allowing me to have a really good day of writing and when i have a good day of writing i feel emotionally in step and i feel connected so without without when i when i get go through days without getting anything written i feel kind of like sad 
and definitely guilty with myself. And, and, uh, so I feel like having that empty space and, and no distractions is like, I love it. It's like my, it's like my drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, what turns you off? Uh, unlike most, uh, writer cliches where they, where people talk about going to the cafe or sitting on like the, uh, <laughs> the beautiful like scenic overlook and writing. I, I, I can't have any of that perspective in my life. I need to, when I, if I want to write, I need to be like in the, in the rubber room with the straight jacket on, with just my hand free. <laughs> yeah, right. And so people who write to music, I mean, I love music and music such a big inspiration, but I cannot write to it. It just can't be done. I just, I don't know what it I is. I can't either. There's too many words. The words in my head clap the words <laughs> in the song. Right. <laughs> um, what is your favorite curse word? Fuck if I know. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be a popular one, that. In the... <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's my favorite. I, I think I, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and, and uh, in, in Philadelphia, that word is used probably three to five times per sentence. So it becomes, <laughs> becomes part of everyday vernacular. I, I use it for all kinds of different purposes. Mm-hmm. Um... Not in the classroom, though. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Um... What sound or noise do you love? Oh man! Um, besides silence, I can I can honestly listen to like just there's just the the intermittent sound of birds chirping outside. Like you have a, like a nice day, and just like in the background, hearing that that like chirping of birds, it's just peaceful to me. Yeah. And water. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? <laughs> I'm trying to take some some heat for this one, but I, I cannot stand the, the sound of a baby crying. It makes me want to jump out of my skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love kids though. Yeah, no, it's the same. But I, mean, I guess that's a. I'll help you out here. It's an empathetic empathetic thing, right? You know, you want to stop them crying, right? That's what. It yeah, is. we'll lean back on science on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, what profession other than your own? Oh. Other than your own thousand, would you like to attempt? <laughs> I would. Uh, I really love like planting and and uh, being outside, like just like landscaping and stuff. So I, maybe like a farmer, or I mean, I guess this is. I'm probably not trying to make a ton of money. I keep on picking jobs that don't make a ton of money. I mean, being a writer, <laughs> like a teacher. I think I'm going to be a carpenter next. But but yeah, I think a farmer would be kind of cool. I like the open space, like the idea that I had to w- work with my hands and wake up early in the morning and go to sleep early at night. I guess and maybe eat like dinner at noon or something. But I think uh, I think it would be fun to work with plants. Yeah. Um... Yeah, good question. What profession? Uh, good answer. Good question. Yeah, good question, James. Uh, what profession? Question, <laughs> <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? I also love cooking, but I think I would be a horrible chef because I'm so slow, and uh, just the pressure of having to get food out that out to, to customers like so quickly, like they do, and perfectly cooked, and then worrying about whether they're going to be in the bathroom vomiting after that. I don't know if I could deal with that. <laughs> And, and you've got all that, and the, then the the heat. What people forget. So you got the heat of it all, and then you know. So like those, those yeah, people yeah. work in pizza shops and uh, pizza places, and they get to take pizza home, and they say, "Oh, that must be great." And then you, you can imagine after yeah, two ruined, did it ruin pizza for you. Yeah, exactly right. You know, like after two days of that or fried chicken or whatever, you'd be like, you know, 
this is not for me anymore. I need to quit the job just so I can go back to enjoying the food. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't have anybody ruining pizza for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, let the wild rumpus begin. <laughs> You've practiced that one. No, no one comes up with an answer like that so quick. <laughs> that's, one of my favorite, that's one of my favorite quotes. I figured that's perfect to throw in there. But I think... Uh, I think if I if I was uh, going up to to the pearly gates, I'd wanted to I wanted to be fun and, and party time. Yeah. Since most of my life down here on Earth is pretty pretty calm and uh, and isolated usually. Most writers feel that way. I think. I, I guess it, I guess if you say something like that, you're like, okay, we can get on. You know, we'll we'll be familiar with each other, then that'll, that'll be cool. <laughs> yeah. <we'll>, yep. <laughs> um, Frank, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, if people want to get you on social media, how can they do that? I'm looking, I'm seeing Frank Moe Writer on Twitter. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Good stuff. And you can also go to my website. It's uh, Frank Mare- Frank, uh, com. Uh, I'm on Facebook and also Instagram. I think I'm Frank Morelli Author on there. Um, yeah, so any any of those places are, are perfect. I better. Do, we, do I have you on Instagram? I better find that. I'll be I think you do. I I'll think be, you do. Good stuff because I'll be a terrible advocate for for telling people to do stuff without doing it myself. So I better get on that. Um, and and by the way, people can still buy no sad songs on uh, from Fish Out Water Books at fowbooks.com and they can get it Amazon and Bonds and Noble and everything like that. I guess um, there's no point going through your many many events that um, I know you've always got a line of you very very busy guy at the moment, but people can. Get your itinerary, I guess, from from the website. It'll be up to date and everything like that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, if anybody that has to be in the uh, in the North Carolina area, uh, I'll be doing a signing to, uh, on Saturday at two o'clock at uh, Barnes and Noble in High Point, North Carolina. And then, yeah, there'll be some more events going up there pretty soon. Good stuff. Um, it may be last Saturday by the time that people get this, so don't don't turn up. <laughs> on any random Saturday, right? Um, I'll try to get it out in time, but we'll, we shall see. Um, Frank, thanks again, um, and thanks for everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>